Hi, welcome back to The Fly. We're joined today by Kevin McCarthy's former chief of staff, Michaela Carr. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So our first question is, we know you started your career as a private practice attorney. Um, so what inspired you to make the switch to enter public service and work in the House of Representatives? You know, I was really lucky to have some really cool experiences practicing law in a traditional sense immediately after law school. And I learned a ton. I learned a lot of really great skills from really brilliant people. Um, and I found that work really interesting, but also was not, it, I didn't find the work incredibly fulfilling. It was largely incredibly large companies fighting with one another over money, which is important and it's important to their shareholders and it's important to the country. And, you know, no shade on anyone who is continuing in that practice, but it wasn't fulfilling in that sense. And when I had the opportunity after big law and working for an international company to try and kind of enter public service, um, I found a really great niche that allowed me to kind of marry the experience of practice, the experience of doing incredible investigations and anti-corruption work with government service. Awesome. And then obviously that public service led you ultimately um, to your role as chief of staff for Kevin McCarthy. Could you maybe just tell us a little bit about what that role was like? Obviously, um, tumultuous a bit towards the end, but maybe just in the early stage, what that felt like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, tumultuous is, is fair. Um, before I, I joined uh, Team McCarthy, I had worked at three different House committees, um, ultimately becoming the general counsel and parliamentarian of the Ways and Means Committee, when then Leader McCarthy called and asked if I would join the team as his general counsel. Um, so I was able to spend about four and a half years with Team McCarthy, ultimately um, in his last year as speaker, um, both as his general counsel, and then ultimately he asked me to be his chief. And so it was just a phenomenal honor of a lifetime to have the highest ranking staff job in an entire branch of government. Um, the work is incredibly varied and high paced. And the best thing about the work is that you're surrounded, or at least our team was because of, of how Speaker McCarthy hired, um, surrounded by absolutely brilliant people who are doing their best to make things work. Um, and how things work varies and the work changes, the substance of the work changes. Um, but that job entails everything from being completely conversant on all of the policy matters of the moment, as well as understanding when the sergeant at arms needs to be involved in something or the architect of the Capitol. Um, it is ultimately in charge of the security for the entire Capitol. And a lot of kind of the nuanced day-to-day -day HR stuff um, that the entire place um, is, is dependent upon. So it was a really tremendous opportunity and it was a job kind of unlike any other, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned in there real quick that you worked as general counsel before. How did that role kind of influence your transition to, to chief of staff for Kim McCarthy? So, you know, it was really great. The way that the speaker handled his team is he had a very flat reporting structure. So anyone, you know, there were, you know, five, four or five people in his inner circle who were pretty much involved in all of the things, all of the decisions, um, strategy decisions, um, timing decisions, policy decisions, and that would include the, the head of policy and the head of the, um, the manager of the floor, the floor team, and the manager of the members, and the general counsel. And so we would all work very, very closely together um, on every single thing that came across the speaker's desk, whether it was something small like what room to host dignitaries in, and what would be the ramifications of hosting someone in one room rather than another room, and would that be a snub, would that be received as a snub, to 
you know, hosting joint sessions with Prime Minister Modi and having, you know, international visitors come to the capital to when, what, scheduling what day bills are going to be on the floor and understanding, working very, very closely with the majority leader's team and the WHIPS team to make sure that when we put bills on the floor, they passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you obviously mentioned the tumultuous period at the very end. Um, and obviously we all know the Politico version of that story and what we see in the news, but being inside of that situation, what is your perspective? Do you have any like unique stories or fun memories from that time? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was the ride of a lifetime. I think, you know, we knew that we were, um, going to have to make some pretty tough decisions and that ultimately each decision point I think can be summed up as do you do the right thing for your job and career do you do the right thing for the country um, the debt limit deal I think was a turning point um, for this Congress and in the spring when Speaker McCarthy entered into a deal with President Biden to cap spending to reduce overall spending to reform NEPA for the first time in 40 years and to raise the debt ceiling um, married with significant cuts to spending, including a 1% cut if deals were not reached um, for full year funding in the future. You know, I think a lot of people wanted there to be a fight there that didn't happen. They wanted to sh- something that was not feasible. And we made the decision and the speaker made the decision that the full faith and credit of the United States debt was not something to be toyed with. And we cut, in my view, a, an absolutely historic deal to, for the first time, reduce deficit and pair that with raising the debt limit. And I think that was a turning point um, because it, the speaker showed that he was not going to do anything um, that wasn't for the good of the country. And ultimately, when the debt limit um, funding mechanism was time to be renewed and we had to decide whether or not to allow a lapse in funding and shut the government down or to allow uh, America's troops to be paid. Uh, we made the decision to allow troops to be paid, to not shut the government down, to let government funding continue, knowing full well that we would be kicked out of office for it. And it was absolutely the right decision. So do you think that now, regardless of which party holds the majority in the House, that this is become, going to become a perpetual issue where we're always going to be fighting over the debt limit and of over government shutdown? Yeah, I mean, we have been having that fight for a long time. I think hopefully, hopefully, yes, hopefully there has been a change in the trajectory. I think we have a debt ceiling that needs to be raised once it is met. By statute, we say we have to raise it. That means you need bicameralism and presentment in order to raise that limit. And we have at least half of this country that thinks we're spending too much. And so if what we have been able to do is say, going forward, yes, we will not mess with the full faith and credit of the United States debt, we will allow the debt limit to be raised, but every single time that it's going to be raised, we are going to pair that with deficit reduction. We are going to pair that with cost savings. We are going to pair that with policy changes that over the long run will actually help return our country's fiscal house to order. Um, I say 50%, I think there's a large part of the country that doesn't Think that that's true. That things we have, we can print more money, and we can spend more money, and we can print all the money, and we have a cool machine at the Treasury Department can let us print more money. And so, yeah, people disagree with me. They think that we can just print our way out of things, um, but it is not responsible to spend in such a way that the the person who's holding the power of the American purse is the CCP, mm-hmm. um, who owns most of our debt. 
These are questions that when we're talking about whether or not we can afford to extend certain social safety nets or we can afford to make certain um, energy decisions that are going to cost money for America, you know, we need to think who's benefiting from that. And in a lot of instances, you know, China does hold a very large portion of our debt. And is that is that the right thing for the America's national security? Yeah. And kind of sticking on that topic of the national debt um, in China, do you believe that there are fears of potential debt trapping the future from China towards the United States? Or, or what would be the ramifications, do you think, of kind of the national debt growing with China holding so much of our, our debt? Yeah, look, I mean, China is looking for ways to become um, the supreme power in the world. Um, they're not there, and their system of government, I think, will prevent them um, from achieving that kind of dominance. But they are not um, looking for ways to partner with America. They are looking for ways to undermine American interests and to take um, advantage where possible. Um, we they, they take advantage by buying up large portions of land. They take advantage by uh, buying the debt. And I think that they could call it in. I, I don't think that that's an imminent risk. Um, I, I don't love the idea that we're putting ourselves in the position that it's, it's a risk at all. Absolutely. And then kind of just going back again, not to keep hammering the point down, but just in terms of the end of, of Speaker McCarthy's um, tenure, could you maybe talk us about what that final day looked like kind of from start to finish and and kind of the behind the scenes of how the staff kind of underwent this decision, this process? Um, well, I mean, we knew that we needed to fund the government. And so we had a continuing resolution that allowed the government to be funded that we knew um, that Democrats would support. Um, we had exchanged messages and communications with Hakeem Jeffries' team that morning um, to make sure that they knew that the bill was coming. Um, they held the vote over for the for the um, for the CR. They held it open for several hours, claiming that they didn't know it was coming and they had to read it. But I have receipts. Um, it was all texted to them earlier that morning. But that wasn't good theater for the TV, so that wasn't in their interest. Um, but it, you know, it was really ultimately the decision to fund the government, and we knew that it would result in uh, a member pulling a motion to vacate. We didn't know exactly what day that would happen. As it turns out, there was a funeral for a Republican senator um, in California that was gonna take a large portion of Repu Democrat members, I'm sorry, a Democrat senator was gonna take a large portion of Democrat members to California, um, which would have caused their absence. And so that sped up the motion to vacate being pulled. Um, and there's a time frame by which that vote happens and then it happened that morning. So we. We were ready, we knew. Um, the list that allowed uh, Chairman Patrick McHenry to be the Speaker Pro Tem had been prepared in advance and was talked about. Um, so we had talked with his team about what that would look like and worked with him and the Sergeant at Arms about how that would um, transfer um, and whether or not Patrick McHenry would be in the line of secession to the President. There's some interesting debates to be had on that and what kind of security detail that would happen. So a lot of the logistics behind the scenes stuff that people don't think about that were being taken care of that day. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that, you know, perhaps a lot of the bureaucratic stuff that goes on behind the scenes isn't really interesting for MSNBC or Fox or whoever. Um, so how do you think that, how big of a role did the 
cable TV have in sensationalizing all of what was going on, and how did that shape the narrative um, to being different than what was actually going on behind the scenes? Well, I think I think they had a significant role. I think when you look at the members, some of whom might have taken that vote, none of whom I will mention by name, um, you know, they're not interesting people. They haven't accomplished anything in their lives. They haven't passed legislation that matters. They haven't done anything to help their constituents in their districts. But by tearing down other people, they got on cable TV every day. Every day they got on all of these networks and you had really smart, competent, thoughtful, well-paid journalists shoving mics and cameras in their face. Are you gonna do it today? Are you gonna do it today? And I think when you look at the fact that they found relevance, I mean, these are people who, people like my family could not have named before this happened, and now it's a, a household name. Um, but not because of anything that they accomplished, or that they did for their constituents, or that they did for the country. And had cable media not played that role, and they weren't getting that kind of um, dopamine that they were receiving from being on TV, uh, I don't. I don't know that you would have had the outcome that you had. So, do you think that that kind of positioning is purely rhetoric, just from those, from those who were really resisting and trying to get themselves on cable news? Do you think that they genuinely believed everything that they were saying, no. or do you think it's just entirely rhetoric? rhetoric to entirely rhetoric. Get I, I mean, in in fairness, most of it changed on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So, if you follow closely, yeah. there was there was not a thread. <laughs> I guess my question to that too would be with kind of a cadre of reporters following um, your stuff everywhere. Did that feel internally like there was a lot of pressure on you all, or was that kind of just outside noise from the media as things were ramping up at the end? So that's a great question. I mean, for, I'm a, I'm a, I was a staffer, right? And you're, you're a staffer, staffer. So it was never about me. It was never about our team. But you become very um, aware of, you know, the scrums and, you know, they would wait at the door and wait to gather around the speaker or wait to, you know, see if they could get a few minutes. And um, so the definitely I think that we were very much aware of the pressure, um, but I think it, it was it was more what, what felt heavier was not, you know, the media trying to shove cameras in your face or, or microphones trying to make more of a story. I think it was the real weight of, you know, is shutting down the government and not allowing the CR to pass the right thing you know what are the ramifications you heard many members say oh but people will get paid in the end you know like congressional staff for example don't get paid if there's a government shutdown um so when you hear people uh, congressional staff and, and and military i think is, is is important to focus on when you hear people say yeah but we passed the bill so they'll get paid eventually it's just such a disconnect with how people live their lives right to say you don't get your money now but don't worry if this lasts for three weeks or four weeks or five weeks, we'll cut you a check in the end. That doesn't acknowledge um, America's reality, which is people don't have that kind of money in the bank. They don't have the money to pay their rent if they're not, like people are living, they're, they're, they're working not just for fun, they're working for that paycheck, and so they need that money. And so the pressure that we felt, I think, was really about making sure we were doing the right thing for the country. And the rest of it was just noise. Fair enough. Um, and kind of on that topic, obviously for for the speaker and for your office as well, there was a balance between oversight responsibilities, but then also ensuring fair and just procedures. Um, how, what challenges, I guess, on top of that, did you feel in maintaining that balance and kind of where um, did that balance kind of take you? 
great question. I mean, I think when you see, you know, politics in general, it's almost like a, a one-way ratchet. You know, once someone breaks the glass, you know, the next person's not going to hold back. So when you look at kind of the obligations around something as, as, as weighty or serious as impeachment, for example, you know, when Donald Trump was impeached twice um, without any of the protections that were afforded to Nixon or Clinton for those impeachment proceedings or the impeachment kind of work through that, that was talked, talked about, um, you know, you can't then go to your own members, even if you're a legal geek like me, you can't go to your members and be like, okay, I know the Democrats just threw all the rule books out of the window, but we have an obligation to behave better. Um, you can say that, but then you will get laughed at um, because they will say, but you know, they get away with it and we didn't. And so when you look at kind of when um, advantages are taken or when someone kind of pushes the boundaries, um, issuing subpoenas or that, that aren't, you know, based in law, you know, the next party that's going to want to come in and say, well, look, you guys did this, we want to do this. And so you have to kind of encourage a balance and encourage going back to first principles, which is what is the role? What does the Constitution say our job is? What is the Constitution plus the last hundred years of Supreme Court cases say that our job is here? And I think that the Speaker McCarthy did an excellent job balancing that um, and keeping those kind of things in check. Do you think that we're going to see in the future like more nuclear option breaking glass type of moments for like judicial impeachment or forced recess or things where it just keeps spiraling out of control and getting even more and more crazy? I do. I think, you know, once people learn of a new tool in the toolbox, they, they want to they use it. They want to show it off. Um, I think, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But the reality is, is that there are really important things that, that need to happen to hold governments accountable. Um, one of the things that we, we did during the debt limit deal is make sure that the appropriations process would continue. And that if it did not continue, there would be a cut in spending. The real power is in the money. You know, the United States Congress does not have the authority to jail someone. The United States Congress does not have the authority to conduct a trial of someone if they thought you have broken the law. That is solely left to Article 2 and then to the United States Constitution. We're not supposed to be prosecuting people in Congress. And so we have this, like, desire to extract revenge or to get vengeance. And the reality is, is that's not the role of Congress. Congress is there to legislate. And so ultimately, I, I don't think it will be uh, well I don't think it will end in the results that they would like. Um, I don't think they'll have great outcomes, but I do think, you know, especially when they are rewarded um, with a lot of media time, um, the incentives change. And if they are looking to get on TV, then, you know, sometimes passing the best legislation isn't the quickest way to get on TV. So then on that kind of vein of media attention being a determinant of government action, will maybe impeachment proceedings then increase if more media time is given to these things? Obviously, in 2024, we're looking at a potential rematch between President Biden and former President Trump, um, and impeachment threats have been levied against both of them. Do you feel like that's a reasonable expectation for the next president to, to have, that an impeachment trial may be levied against them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, precedent used to mean something. When, when Pelosi announced the impeachment of then-President Donald Trump over you know a policy difference on that Ukrainian phone call, it, it took away any meaning of impeachment. Like that's now impeachment's just the thing we do now to the other guy, and I don't think that that's going to change. As I mean, they were they were threatening to impeach Trump well before he won. Um, they had measures on the floor to impeach him multiple times before they actually announced an impeachment, and the idea that somehow that's not going to continue, I think, is foolishness. 
so do you think we should just as as American citizens do you think that it's time whether we like it or not to start accepting the fact that an impeachment proceeding is going to be a natural part of every president going forward of their term I mean, or you could, as American citizens, vote for people that understand the, the role of the Constitution. I mean, look, uh, American democrat, democratic republic system that we have that allows us to send these people to D.C. doesn't demand which people we send. We get to do that. We get to pick. And if the person that you are voting for is screaming and yelling about how much vengeance they're going to extract if they get to D.C., and you vote for them, then you should expect impeachment, 100%. But if the person that you're voting for, if you choose to send someone who is worried about solving the national debt crisis or solving the problem with a growing and pervasive CCP or solving the fentanyl crisis at the border or solving immigration, you know, those people are much less interested in vengeance. Um, and so we, we, can, we can assume that this will not be the end of it, um, but I don't think we necessarily need to accept that it's inevitable. That's fair, but I mean, in your opinion, is there a candidate who's really impeachment-proof right now, or does the threat of impeachment maybe speak more to the divide between where Democrats and Republicans are at? Is there a presidential candidate who today could get by without facing that threat from Congress? I, I don't know. I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I think... What, what we've seen is an unwillingness to kind of accept the system as it was designed. Um, you know, demanding compromise is a feature, not a bug. It, you know, we require bicameralism and presentment in order for anything to become law. So if you're in a situation like we are right now with the Republicans having a majority in the House and Democrats having a majority in the Senate and the, Democrat, the, the White House being controlled by the Democrat Party, you're not going to get everything that you want in a bill. You're not going to get everything that you want in a piece of legislation. You being Democrats or Republicans, right? There has to be some give and take. There has to be some coming to the table. And I think what we have lost sight of is that if you come to the table with someone, that that doesn't make you the enemy. Like It's actually why you were sent to D.C. to kind of find common ground, um, to Congress, to come together in this Congress and to come together and, and find solutions for the country. Um, but to the question of like, is there any president that, you know, we could put in that spot and then whichever party doesn't belong to him or her would be like, okay, gloves off. Like, I just don't think that's the nature of the American politic right now. So how do we get back to normal then, would you say? How do we get back to regular compromise and move away from this dangerous precedent that we've set? I think it's gonna take some time. Um, you know. I hate to, I hate to be accused of of being ageist, or ist in any way, um, you know. But it the the baby boomer generation has kind of had their turn. Um, I think some of that vengeance runs long and deep, on both sides, and I think that the next kind of generation that needs to come forward, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Um, I think we need some fresh blood um, in some of these seats um, who maybe have not decided to vilify the other side. And I think, you know, it's going to be your generation and your colleagues um, and maybe you who are able to pull it off. Um, so moving on, we talked 
earlier about how China is seeking to become a global hegemon, you know, in the region and worldwide. Um, we're all college students. We're all young people. Many of us on this campus have TikTok, and I know it's a particular issue that you feel strongly about. Um, so if I'm a college student, pitch to me why, as an American citizen, why shouldn't I, why should I delete TikTok from my phone? Do you actually have TikTok on your phone? Currently, yeah. Oof. Okay. So, a couple things to keep in mind. One, have you read the terms of service? No. No. Okay. So, this... <laughs> TikTok, in their terms of service, admits that they are tracking your keystrokes. Mm-hmm. And you might think, well, I don't care. Like, I texted, like, are you going to be there at 2 to my buddy? And then I asked my mom if she sent the care package. And then I asked my girlfriend if we can go to this particular place. And then I sent a text to my colleague about a study group. So, what do I care, Right. What do, they, what do I care if China knows what I'm watching, what I'm buying, et cetera, et cetera? They're not interested in me. So I want to dismantle that just quickly. They mm-hmm. absolutely are interested in you. Mm-hmm. You are the future of this country. You're in an elite university. You are the power center for the next generation. You are at an elite university at the center of power of the entire globe. You live in the nation's capital the most powerful place in the world. And you are at an elite university and they are interested in every single thing about you, first of all. But pulling back, it's not you. It is an absolute vacuum of data. Why is that data so valuable? The future is in AI. The future is in having automated learning, being able to tell us how to make decisions from how to make decisions about what bombs to drop and where, how to make decisions about where to send the drones, how to make decisions about how we're going to invest money. AI is absolutely the future. In the race to AI, he who has the most data wins. In order to build the algorithms, in order to build the underlying infrastructure for AI, China will win that race if we continue to give all of our data away for free. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they're spying on us. True. So, do you think that though? Do you think it's inevitable that we're going to lose just because of the nature of our country? I mean, obviously, we're a lot more individualistic. We have a lot more freedom. Like China can restrict data in a way that the United States government just can't, and frankly, shouldn't. So, do you think it's inevitable that we're going to lose that war, or is it all about us making individual efforts to try and reduce that divide and how much data each country has in the other? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't think it's inevitable. I mean, look. The, 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 the beauty that is the ability for the CCP to censor their citizens and to censor what, what, they, what they or their citizens learn and don't learn about things that happen in the world, you know, that will ultimately be their downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what sets America apart, is our you know, strict adherence to free speech and our founding principles. But the reality is, is there's no reason for all of America's data to be given for free to China because we're watching fun recipe and dance videos. That's just foolishness on yeah. our part. Also, we're making us stupid. Mm-hmm. Also, it's shortening your attention span. Just to push back a little bit on the, on the TikTok rhetoric, though, some proponents of TikTok may say that other companies, other American companies like Facebook, Snapchat, already also engage in data mining practices. Mm-hmm. So if these American companies already have a regular American citizen's data, is it really that much different if ByteDance has it? Or what's the divide there in your ByteDance is controlled by the CCP. Sure. 
But are we saying that American companies are... American companies are not controlled by the CCP. There is no such thing as free enterprise in the People's Republic of China. That's not a thing that exists. ByteDance is owned by the Communist Party in China. Employees of ByteDance have access to the data. Employees of ByteDance have admitted publicly that they have gone in and searched individual American journalists' information so that they can spy on American journalists when American journalists are writing things about the CCP that they don't like. That is a national security threat that we should not take lightly. Whether we, when we're interacting with Meta or, I don't know what other apps are out there now, X, whatever people have, we can turn off the data mining, we can turn it on, but even if you couldn't turn it off and they were still accumulating all of that info, they're not using it to spy on Americans to benefit the Communist Party. Do you think best practices for Americans, though, in terms of just avoiding data mining in general is to avoid social media altogether? Or are there still those kind of safe practices that you would encourage regular American citizens to take? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like social media. I don't think that data mining in and of itself is an, is an awful thing, right? Like, just as an example, you know, all of these apps mine your data and then give you targeted ads to a sweater or sneakers or whatever you looked for, then they'll look for... Um, similar things that they think that you will like. In our generation, uh, your generation, and our kind of like, kind of cultural reality right now, people like that. People like targeted ads. They can turn them off if they don't. But people get a real value from having things made easier for them. And advertisers find real value in knowing who they can advertise to. And that's an entire economy in and of itself. So it's not the data or the data sharing that I think is so problematic. It's the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. um and then one last kind of big topic before we do lightning round at the end um so chevron is a big decision that's coming up um and i know you obviously have lots of legal experience so just for everybody who doesn't know can you do a quick chevron for dummies and why it's important okay chevron for dummies so something called the chevron doctrine or chevron deference um is a supreme court um precedent that has evolved over the last several decades that relates to how courts are supposed to make decisions when things get complicated, right? So Congress passes a law that says, let's just use the FCC as an example. FCC, go figure out how to regulate broadband. That sounds complicated, right? And so then the FCC, independent agency, has lots of really smart people over there that know a lot about broadband. They go and regulate broadband. And then somebody sues them over something they don't like. And they get to court, and the court says, gee, this is actually really complicated. I'm going to defer to the agency experts. These are the experts that know this stuff. They wrote these regs. We're going to give great deference to what the agency says when there's a point of contention or complication. Um, a lot of people believe that Chevron's deference, that kind of deference that's given to agencies, has grown um, into something that it was never intended to be. It's one thing if it's a really complex, um, you know, really specific, nuanced area of the law that the agency experts like worked hard on and therefore there's some deference due because it's really complicated. What it has since turned into is agencies kind of get away to do with whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So in the current case that's before the court is the case Loper and it's about Fish and Wildlife Service and whether or not the 
agency can not only force there to be law enforcement agents on actual boats, but whether they can force the boat, the fishermen, to pay for that. And I think ultimately the agency's like, well, you have to defer to us. Congress told us to solve it. We will solve it however we see fit. Um, defer to us. And I think in this current era, there is an appetite, um, both of the kind of American kind of zeitgeist, but also of the court to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, there's nobody elected there. There's no, like, real accountability there. Did we really mean to give these agencies this much power? Um, and so Loper, I think, will have an opportunity to, to really kind of set some things right. Awesome. Uh, unfortunately, we're, we're running a little bit low on time, but we can go into a quick rapid-fire lightning round. Um, just some quick fun questions. First of which, um, obviously we're now about a month uh, into the year, um, but do you still have any New Year's resolutions that you're trying to keep up with or any um, practices that you wanted to change for the new year? My New Year's resolution mm-hmm. almost every year is to drink more water, and that's really boring, <laughs> but it's true, and also I failed miserably, and so I need to drink more water, and you should too. Um, also, um, I know that you taught trial practice at Catholic University, so as a professor, do you have any particular pet peeves? What should we not do as students? Hmm. Um, I think a, p- a particular pet peeve as students is to um, not understand that maybe you don't know everything. There's, <laughs> there's been more than one occasion in both my teaching life, but also in my grown-up life, where I've had students explain things to me that I'm literally an expert on. It's always just really disconcerting. That's fair enough. Uh, and then last, to stick on the university topic, uh, what's your favorite memory from your time at University of Nevada? Oh, that was so much fun. Um, probably uh, my favorite memory would be when I would get up really, really early in the morning and hit the slopes. You could leave my house at, you know, 7.30, be on the slopes by 8, get an entire half day of skiing and then still be in class wow. by your 1 That's o'clock so afternoon nice. classes. Wow. But I would show up, like, still in my ski gear because I didn't, and you know, you're not going to allow time to go home and change. That's boring. <laughs> and so I would, like, slam into the into the parking lot still in ski gear, but get my afternoon classes in after morning on the slopes. That's awesome. Wow. Nothing like DC, unfortunately, but, um, anyway, we want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the fly. You can find us on social media at the fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to the fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kenneth Jackson, Julian Zeitlinger, Abigail Asadi, and Chase Dobson. Our communications team is Andrea Smith, Austin Culpepper, Darius Wagner, and Sarah Sverdlov. Our production team is Will Hayes and David Grice. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Eng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.